The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is Volume 1, The Prehistoric World, Episode 4, Homo Erectus. Erectus, upright man, head up straight and looking forward. In fact, we will be covering over a million years in this week's podcast. Homo Erectus is the story of the journey of an ape man becoming a human being. Previously on the History of the World podcast, we were looking at the very first humans who we believed had evolved from Australopithecines, a tree-dwelling bipedal ape. Upon the evolution of Homo habilis, we determined that there were many different kinds of hominins in existence that had all evolved differently according to the local circumstances and pressures of each case. We discussed how very ape-like these humans still were, still adept at tree climbing and still walking in a hunched fashion. We took a bigger look at the contemporary world of Homo habilis roughly two million years ago and recognised that the world was undergoing substantial changes that were pushing Homo habilis to become stronger and more intelligent and also more expertly capable of living life out of the trees. As we know, this week we are talking about Homo erectus, the next human evolutionary milestone. Eugène Dubois To begin the story of Homo erectus, I would like to introduce you to one of my favourite characters in the story of paleoanthropology, Mr Eugène Dubois. Eugène Dubois was born in a village called Aisden, in the Duchy of Limburg in the Netherlands in the year 1858. From a young age, Dubois was fascinated by Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Dubois was clearly a young man of academic talent, but also with an obstinate will of his own, which comes down to us in his reflected legacy to this day. Dubois was absolutely engrossed by the concept of there being a missing link between monkeys and humans, and he possessed a life-consuming desire to find the answer to the unsolved mystery of the missing link. So where on planet Earth would a 19th century anatomist go to find the missing link? Well, a theory did exist that the place to go was Southern Asia. It was even hypothesised at the time that there could have been a sunken continent once rising above the sea that was the land bridge from India to Madagascar in the west and stretching across the Indian Ocean to Australia in the east. A mysterious continent called Lemuria. To be honest, this is complete rubbish. No such continent existed and not everybody could agree 
on exactly what it was anyway. All Dubai knew is that the mainstream theory was that the missing link was to be found somewhere in Asia and Dubois was going there to find the missing link regardless of what anyone thought. Where others had failed, Dubois was determined to succeed. In 1887, he joined the Dutch army specifically to be posted to the Dutch East Indies, modern Indonesia, in search of his prize. The Dutch East Indies were already home to large numbers of gibbon and the orangutan. He would start his search among the rivers and caves of the island of Sumatra before moving onto the neighbouring island of Java. Java Man It was while near Trinil in East Java during the year 1891 that Dubois and his team discovered a particularly interesting skull cap. One of the notable aspects of the skull cap was the heavy brow bridge and a sagittal keel. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because we've mentioned a sagittal crest before when discussing the robust Australopithecines called the Paranthropines in the two previous podcasts. The sagittal crest of the Paranthropines was a prominent crest that ran from the front to the back of the top of the skull. The difference here is that it is a sagittal keel, and this is a raised ridge from the front to the back, which is not completely absent from modern humans, so just a ridge. Initially, Dubois named this creature Anthropopithecus, as the skull was accompanied by a tooth similar to one found in India over 10 years previous. Dubois believed this to be too ape-like to be passed off as the missing link, and therefore continued his search. Further searching revealed a fossilised thigh bone of an upright individual. Dubois determined that this belonged to the same individual as the skull cap and the tooth, and upon measurement of the cranial volume at 900 cubic centimetres, he determined that this upright walking individual, with a brain capacity midway between modern humans and modern apes, was now actually the missing link that the world had been looking for. He renamed his fossil Pithecanthropus erectus. Pithecanthropus is similar to Anthropopithecus in that it is the same two elements, Pithecus meaning ape and Anthropus meaning human. The former name, Anthropopithecus meaning human ape and the revised Pithecanthropus meaning ape man. Pithecanthropus was also used uh, as the name of the undiscovered missing link. So the missing link was always Pithecanthropus in theory. Now Dubois decided that it was time to use it and he championed himself as the man to solve the mystery. Dubois had found the missing link. Contemporary reaction. Eugène Dubois had cracked the code. He had solved the mystery of the missing link and in 1895, he returned back to Europe to promote his wonderful discovery and take his place at the forefront of the paleoanthropological world as the man who found the answer to the riddle. The reaction he received from the scientific world upon his return was not quite as expected though. Some scientists thought that the fossil was too much like an ape to be the missing link. Others 
thought that it was too much like a human to be the missing link. There were even some who doubted Dubois' integrity by questioning whether the three bones were even related to each other at all. This is not what Dubois expected. As far as he was concerned, he had solved the puzzle and if anyone didn't believe him, then he would tell them again until they did. Ultimately though, scientists will only believe what they believe regardless of all these vain attempts to convince them otherwise. And by 1900, Dubois took the fossils and locked them away. Nobody was allowed to study them at all until they were accepted for what Dubois wanted them to be accepted for. Peking Man It was the 1920s before things were reawakened on the Asian front when it came to paleoanthropological discoveries. A team of geologists and paleontologists arrived at a fossil-rich site in Zhou Godian in the Republic of China. It was in 1928 that a lower jaw alongside several teeth and skull fragments were discovered and presented to the world. This excited the sponsorship of more archaeological expeditions and there soon became a further number of skulls and numerous other bones excavated from the Jogodian site right up until 1937 when warfare broke out between China and its neighbour Japan. So it was good news potentially for Eugène Dubois, who had spent the last few decades sulking about not being able to convince people about what he wanted them to believe about his Java men. These new fossils strongly resembled Dubois' beloved Java men and would surely serve to prove the scientific world after all these years that he was right all along. When Dubois got his opportunity to speak, he completely dismissed all of the Peking man fossils as being too human. It didn't matter to Dubois that they could validate his Java man. After all, they were not his Java man. In fact, the truth is that nothing at all would have ever been Dubois' Java man. In Dubois' mind, he and only he could possibly be the one who could take any credit for the discovery of the missing link. Nobody else mattered, not their opinions, not their fossils, nothing. Eugène Dubois died at the age of 82 in the year 1940. Right up until the end, he was just as stubborn as ever. The Scottish anthropologist Sir Arthur Keith wrote a eulogy for Eugène Dubois. In this eulogy, he says that Eugène Dubois was an idealist. His ideas being so firmly held that his mind tended to bend facts rather than alter his ideas to fit them. In 1950, both Eugène Dubois' Java Man and the Peking Man of Jogodian, China, were both categorised as Homo erectus. Turkana Boy So, here's a conundrum for us. We've spent our entire time during this podcast series in Africa, particularly the Great Rift Valley and down into the northern regions of modern-day South Africa. So how have we ended up talking about discoveries that are near enough on the other side of the world, in the Far East and Southeast Asia? 
there must have been some form of migration that we have completely missed out of the story. So how did the story of Homo habilis in Africa transit into the story of Homo erectus in East Asia? Well, I don't think any of us want any chronological gaps, so we had better investigate what had happened and how it happened. Let's initially go back to the Leakey family. As we found out previously, Mary Nicholl was a British lady who married the Kenyan paleoanthropologist Lewis Leakey. Although being Kenyan, as the name would suggest, Lewis's parents were actually Church of England missionaries working in British East Africa, which is roughly modern-day Kenya. Lewis was born in this East Africa protectorate of the British Empire in 1903, so he was a white-skinned Kenyan, thanks to his British parentage. After marrying Mary, they had three sons, all born in Kenya and, of course, white-skinned. It was the first of their sons, Jonathan, who discovered Johnny's child, a very important Homo habilis fossil which we discussed in the previous podcast. Their second son, Richard, was born in Nairobi in the British colony and protectorate of Kenya in 1944. Like his older brother, Jonathan, Richard followed his parents into the field of paleoanthropology. During Richard's childhood, his parents employed the labour of a young man called Kimoya Kimeu, who was very much of black Kenyan heritage. Kameu was equally as fascinated by the work of his employers as his employers themselves and he soon became a very wise member of the Leakey team. Being the same age as Richard's older brother, Richard formed a close friendship with Kameu and the two of them worked together on a number of different projects. However, it was clearly Kameu who initially had more passion for paleoanthropology than Richard who had pretty much had to grow up on a diet of constant paleoanthropological study, thanks to his parents. Richard married twice, firstly to an archaeologist called Margaret in 1965, and then to a lady called Meave Epps in 1970. Richard and Meave continued to work in paleoanthropology, as Richard's inherited knowledge of the field was inescapable, and even though he had plenty of other pursuits, he would always remain closely linked to the field. Meave likewise was involved and both remained close to the now extremely knowledgeable Kamoya Kameu. It was in 1984, while Kameu was working at Nariakotomi in Kenya under Richard and Meave's direction, that Kameu would discover a near-complete skeleton of a hominin dating to around 1.5 million years ago. This is about the age that we are looking for to see if we can establish the beginnings of our journey to link up with the Asian discoveries from previously in this episode. So really, what we need to do is see if this animal, which was named Turkana Boy after the Lake Turkana that Nariakotomi sits upon the banks of, has any similarity to the comparatively tall, upright and brainy Java Man and Peking Man. Unfortunately, Turkana Boya was no more than an adolescent when he died, so it was guessed that he would have grown to be almost six feet tall. But even if that was an ambitious claim, then he would surely have not grown to be far from five and a half feet tall. 
Homo habilis was only just over four feet tall, so the height estimate of Turkana boy is significant. The cranial capacity was 880 cubic centimetres, which is very close to the 900 cubic centimetres of Java man, measured by our friend Eugène de Bois. Going onwards, the pelvic structure strongly suggested that Turkana boy could run. This is something we haven't discussed before as Homo habilis has not been referred to as a runner. Now we have a candidate for the animal who had physically advanced from Homo habilis and was much more like the animals that had managed to reach East Asia. Turkana boy was classified as a species called Homo ergaster but this has also been called African Homo erectus as he is undoubtedly similar to Homo erectus when compared to other discoveries. Other discoveries. Here is another discovery that could give us a clue about the migration. A partial skeleton found at a place called Domenici, Georgia in 2001 could link the migratory route out of Africa and into Eurasia. There are two things that are slightly puzzling about this. Firstly, the fossils are dated to 1.8 million years ago. This is much earlier than Turkana boy. The brain case is a mere 600 cubic centimetres, much more like Homo habilis than Turkana boy, who appears to be very advanced. This would suggest that it wasn't Turkana boy who was the first hominin to leave Africa. It was something much more contemporary to Homo habilis who first left Africa. This species is called Homo georgicus, but it is often classified as Homo erectus georgicus, which suggests that the brain case is variable among Homo erectus subspecies. Going back to Lake Tacana, and a discovery that was made in 1978 and later classified as Homo rudolfensis and dated to around 1.9 million years old, there has been a fierce debate about this species between various experts ranging from Meave Leakey to Lee Rogersberger, and there has been continuous disagreements about the physical attributes of this animal due to the scarcity of the fossils. So we are still debating where this one fits into the picture, and some arguing that it is an advanced Australopithecine, and others suggesting that it is just another African speciation. So what kind of picture do we have now? So in this quest to find out how the hominins of Africa from 2 million years ago migrated out of Africa to become the hominins of East Asia from the last 1 million years, we only have the very small-brained Homo georgicus as any sort of geographical link. In the 1990s, we did find fossils of another hominin in Spain. Though these fossils are small in number and point to a migration in a completely different direction than the East Asia route. The fossils date to roughly 1 million years ago and have been tentatively called Homo antecessor and may have practiced cannibalism. Yan Mao Man. So there still exists a big question mark about the migration out of Africa. It seems that a migration occurred before 1.8 million years ago, but there are still Homo erectus species in Africa 1.5 million years ago, so maybe some migrated out and some stayed. 
Maybe some migrated out and migrated back. Or what is probably likely is that there was a continual migration in and out of Africa and we shouldn't dwell too much on this idea of one mass migration in one direction. While we could now have a hominin link for a migration from the Caucasus to Europe, we still need to find a link from Africa and the Caucasus to East Asia. To finally try and answer this question, I'm going to refer to a discovery made in the 1960s of two hominin teeth found in Yanmao County in southwest China. The biggest argument relating to the teeth is the age. No volcanic ash is available to date, so another form of dating other than radiometric had to be used. This time, paleomagnetic dating. Paleomagnetism relates to the magnetic poles of the Earth. We've all used a compass and we know that the magnet points to the north. It doesn't exactly point to the North Pole itself, but to a point called the North Magnetic Pole. And this wanders and drifts over time as it is a naturally occurring phenomenon, subject to a number of physical factors. Where there is a North Magnetic Pole, there is also a South Magnetic Pole. And one thing that we have learned is that in the right conditions, they can switch. So it is possible, and even somewhat inevitable, that the North Magnetic Pole and the South Magnetic Pole will switch places. Imagine the chaos in school classrooms when all the teachers will have to take their world maps down from the walls and put them back up, upside down. This change in polarity has actually happened 12 times in the last 3 million years. Certain rocks actually have a desire to face the North Magnetic Pole and when they are geologically trapped, we can use our knowledge of this geomagnetic reversal of the planet to date fossils and artefacts that are buried alongside these magnetic rocks. This briefly explains another form of dating that is used aside from the radiometric dating methods that we have mentioned previously. Using this method, the Yamal man's teeth have been dated to around 1.7 million years ago, which suggests that there is a link across Asia that dates shortly after the theoretical migration out of Africa 1.8 million years ago. We have to be careful though, because other scientists have suggested that paleomagnetic dating of the Yanmao man has been conducted incorrectly, and as such, some believe the age of the teeth to be no more than 0.9 million years old. So we may not be able to confidently predict the movement of hominins accurately with all of this limited and as such contentious information. However, this podcast is about Homo erectus and a further fact about Yanmao Man is now going to lead us into a completely different interest. Alongside the teeth found at Yanmao are stone artefacts, pieces of animal bone showing signs of human working and more interestingly, ash from campfires. Fire! We haven't talked about fire yet, and fire is certainly one of the most important subjects related to Homo erectus. One of the prevalent sites in the study of hominin use of fire is at Gesher Benot Yaakov in Israel. Evidence exists at this site which is important in understanding how the human diet was changing. Certainly, 
meat was an important part of the diet, with evidence of tool use to carve and access the meat and the marrow rich interior of the bones of deer, elephant, hippo and fish was obvious. Also there was the remains of fruit and vegetables as well as nuts and seeds which supported the idea of a very omnivorous diet. However, a great many of these food remains demonstrated signs of a desire to cook them as they were obviously charred. Humans possessed the ability to harness and control fire for their own benefit. Unlike tool use and communication, this skill is something that is undeniably exclusive to humans. The site itself is almost 0.8 million years old, so it does fit in quite well into the period of Homo erectus. The pitting of tools and the percentage of remains appears consistent with the expectations of the controlled use of fire, as opposed to there being just a random fire breakout at the site, burning everything and coming down to us as a misinterpretation. There are other sites, most notably Kubifora in Kenya, which shows that there is a potential for the controlled use of fire being true as far back as 1.5 million years ago. However, there is a degree of opposition to this. The issue is trying to determine whether fire use was deliberate or accidental. There is no doubt that humans would have had to observe the effects of naturally occurring fire on the environment and not least of all on foodstuffs to have developed a further interest in exploring the possibilities. The effect of cooking foodstuffs would have undoubtedly aided the digestion process and assisting in the expensive tissue theory where it is supposed that the less energy required in the digestive process would have allowed more energy to be utilised for brain development and cooked food is easier to digest. Fire is undoubtedly a fundamentally important step in the development of modern humans. Cookery Teaching someone to cook can be one of the most real experiences in modern life. It is something that has been done for countless generations and is a very basic life skill. All you need is a kitchen area, some food, a source of heat, the right tools and effective communication. We can transpose that scenario to the prehistoric age. The prehistoric kitchen area would have been a constructed hearth, so there would have likely been a dedicated area for food preparation. The food would have been meat and plant based, just like today, but the meat would have been hunted and the plants would have been foraged. The source of heat, today's oven, would have been the controlled fire, which we have discovered in this podcast already. The many kitchen tools that we have today, particularly the knives that we rely on, would have been manufactured from stone by carving stones to have sharp points. The last of the things listed would be the communication. Now, communication is something intangible. It is something that we cannot excavate from archaeological sites, unlike the prehistoric hearths, the charred foodstuffs and the stone tools. However, the fact that cooking would even exist back then is evidence enough that an advanced ability to communicate skills and ideas would have had to have been present in order for the skills to be passed down the generations.
expansion. There is no doubt that hominins would have had to have displayed a significant amount of adaptability to have been able to evidently expand as they did after 2 million years ago. Regardless of the arguments as to where all of these different animals that we have talked about fit into the general evolutionary tree is immaterial. We know that hominins are likely to have extended their range from Africa to beyond. The hominin was an animal accustomed to a particular climate and a particular landscape. However, as mentioned in a previous podcast, the African landscape was changing and the cooling world climate would have meant that tree dwelling in the receding rainforest was becoming a thing of the past and the ability to manoeuvre effectively in the open savanna grasslands that were replacing the rainforest would have been essential. This is likely to have led to the straightening up of Homo erectus's physical frame and the adaptation into an animal that could physically run at speed on its two legs. The ability to run would have increased Homo erectus's ability to hunt as it would now have the speed to chase more attractive prey to greater effect. This ability to run would have required the body to sweat as a means of body temperature regulation, so the hair on the bodies of the Australopithecines that once trapped warmth against the body would now become a hindrance, so this would explain the transition towards the bare-skinned animal that we are today. As our hunting skills improved, then the ability to strategize effectively would have become under pressure. Hunting strategy is very much a part of today's animal world. But there is no doubt that these hominins, with the better ability to communicate, would have been more successful. The ability to construct and control fire would have enabled hominins to secure warmth in those areas that they expanded into that were more seasonal and would have claimed the lives of other migratory hominin groups that did not possess this ability. In summary, we had become adaptable due to our increase in skills and it was all of the above that would have given us the evolutionary edge to be able to expand into areas of the world that would not have been the most natural of our habitats previously. Tools and communication Tools and communication are something that we haven't really explored too closely. What we have done in these first podcasts is advanced significantly from the ape-like tree-dwelling Australopithecine around 3 million years ago to this undoubtedly nomadic proto-human that existed about 1 million years ago. So already we have been on quite an amazing journey together. We have concentrated mainly on the fossil finds and what they tell us about our prehistoric physical characteristics and our way of life. We have looked into the people and the work that they have done over the last 150 years. Before we venture any further forward chronologically in our story and start talking about the fascinating and imagination-stirring world of the Neanderthals, it would be interesting to fill in some of the blanks in our story. So the next couple of podcasts will be a couple of special episodes. The first one will discuss the advancement of Stone Age technology over the period that we have already travelled. We will look closely at our prehistoric ability to construct tools 
and what the purpose of these tools were. The second one will discuss communication. The pressures on our being that would have made effective communication a key attribute and the physical abilities of our ancestors to actually be able to speak to each other alongside some of the expert theories which are always interesting to probe. As ever, we always invite you to email the podcast. So the email address is historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com and I promise to read the best ones out. So you're welcome to email me directly. Also, the blog is still active, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can access maps and the latest editions of the podcast are there as well. And that's about it for this week. So thank you ever so much for listening. Next week, as I say, we're going to have a deeper look at the stone tools that our ancestors were using. And it's going to be very, very interesting. It's really going to build some real knowledge of these creatures that we've already discussed. It's a fundamental part. And I've left it out sort of on purpose because I knew that we were coming back to it on this fifth podcast, the Paleolithic Stone Tools, the Lower Paleolithic Stone Tools. So I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and I look forward to when we get together again this time next week. Cheerio. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.